Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On Twitter, follow LET Radio Show PO1. On Instagram, follow LET Radio Show Podcast. On Rumble, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. And on Gab.com, search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Again, our website is letradioshow.com. Hope to see you online soon. Calling us from Arizona, we have Keith Notek on the phone. Keith is a retired law enforcement officer and author and more. Keith, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Great to be here. You retired after how many years in law enforcement? Uh, 30 years, sir. That's a long career. First of all, the cert thing's got to go. You outranked me in police work. Uh, I'm probably a little bit older than you, but not by a whole lot, so Jay will be perfect. <laughs> You've also written a book chronicling your journey to recovery, for lack of better words. I did. Recovery from uh, <laughs> recovery from alcoholism, recovery from PTSD, and for lack of better words, uh, recovery from uh, career in law enforcement. Yeah, and by the way, all three are very distinct and very real issues for lots of people. Uh, what is the name of the book and where can people get it? The name of the book is uh, From Sorrow to Amazing Grace, One Cop's Journey, and it's available on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, on, and online through Walmart, Target, and a few other vendors. And by the way, you can do a Google search for Keith Notek. That's K-N-O-T-E-K uh, book, and it'll come up. That's what I did because I'm lazy. I can't remember names. <laughs> That's okay. How's the book doing? You know, it's it's doing all right. I mean, it's not a bestseller or anything uh, by any means, but um, I'm, the feedback that I've been getting from it is good. What I'm hearing um, from a handful of people is that, oh my gosh, this is uh, an amazing story. I can relate to it so much. I'm struggling with PTSD and or alcohol, uh, you know, issues because of the career that I chose, which was, you know, uh, some form of public safety, whether it be police or fire. And, um, you know, I guess it uh, struck a chord with, with those folks. And, Whole uh, lots of military folks I know will go through the same things as well. And I guess we're fraternity that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, similarities between, uh, you know, a guy that's uh, been on the, the mean streets of the U.S. fighting crime and uh, combat veterans on deployment. Going back to your police career, where were you policing at? Wow. <laughs> okay, uh, take notes because it's a it's a long list. 
I started uh, actually at the, the, the ripe old age of 16 years old as a police explorer with the Huntington Beach Police Department in Orange County, California. Uh, Huntington Beach hired me as a police cadet, and that, that's a paid position uh, while you are a uh, kind of like a student worker. Uh, while you're a full-time college student, you work 24 hours a week at the police department in, in various capacities. And then uh, eventually they hired me as a recruit, sent me through the academy, um, and then I graduated. I was a police officer for Huntington Beach PD. And uh, th- this was in 1985 when I started. And then uh, I lateraled to Laguna Beach PD, another agency in Orange County, I ended up in Northern California at the Shasta County Sheriff's Department for two years. I worked in the the jail there. Uh, that's where they start you. And I, I didn't care for the uh, working in custody part of it. That so takes a I, special person to do that. And I, my hat's off to the men and women who do corrections works. I, I'll be honest with you. Keith, I don't have the disposition for it. Yeah, it, you know, it's not an easy job, um, and, and you're right. You do have to have a certain personality and disposition for it, and, you know, God bless those who, who do it. Um, there's a real need for it, but, uh, you know, I was in my mid-20s at, at the time, so, you know, I was all full of, uh, you know, and vinegar, so to speak, and wanted to get back out on the street, so I lateraled to the Butte County Sheriff's Department, which was a neighboring county, and northern california i worked there from uh oh 91 to i'm sorry it wasn't 91 that was uh, 93 to 97 and then i left to take a lateral sergeant's job back in southern california with the san Jacinto police department uh because i had gone through a divorce uh, and my then wife and i had two daughters she moved back to southern california and i needed to be a an active participant in my daughter's life. So I, I chose to, to uh, relocate back to Southern California and uh, find another police job down there, which I did at San Jacinto. And that wasn't the last police job you had, though, was it? It, it was not. Uh, <laughs> uh, as fate would have it, in 2004, um, I, I had promoted a couple of times, and I was the, the commander and acting police chief for the city of San Jacinto in Riverside County. The city in 2004 decided that they wanted to contract with the the sheriff to provide police services to the city, which has a population of about 50,000 now. And it's something like, I don't know, 30 square miles. So they felt it was more cost effective. I was hired during that transition from going from an autonomous standalone municipal police department to the third largest sheriff's department in the state of California. So it's safe to say you any aspect of law enforcement, you've probably done it, you've probably seen it, you've been there. You you've had thirty years experience in a variety of agencies and and you're well spoken. You can speak about policing. Oh thank you. <laughs> I mean no, it's it's no small task. But here's why I say this. First of all, my wife and I we watch a lot of television now and I never watch American police produced television series because they get it so wrong. I've started watching BBC produced content more because, well, quite honestly, they do a better job with character development and not everybody's a stereotype cop that that Hollywood loves to put out. 
But I watch these and I watch the news shows and they have experts, so-called experts come on and talk about policing and I, I'm, I scratch my head and go, where did they work? I, I don't think they have any idea what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I know I know a couple of those uh, advisors, if you will, that, that narrate some of those shows. They were never full-time cops. You know, a few of them were part-time cops. Um, you know, they were in, in Hollywood or, or some other type of entertainment and they worked as reserve officers. So they didn't, they didn't live the life, you know, 24-7 like a full-time cop. And it takes a toll on you. We're going to go into, in our conversation, I speak freely about it here on my show. All this show's not about me. Uh, my family paid a heavy price. My first marriage collapsed. I paid a heavy price physically, mentally, emotionally as a result of policing in Baltimore. Almost everyone I know that does police work for any period of time, anywhere in the United States, I used to think that the county people were immune from it. They're not. They see as much as the city guys do. Uh, maybe uh, probably because there's just a whole lot less of them and they cover more area. We are talking with Keith Notek. He's a retired law enforcement officer and author. We're going to talk about his personal journey, what started his downfall, for lack of better words, and more importantly, where he's at today, what it took to get there. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Medicare rules are confusing. They should be. There are over 130,000 pages of regulations. There's Part A through D, Medicare Advantage, and Medigap. According to the CMS, there are government programs available that can help you pay for your medical expenses. Choosing the right Medicare plan is a really big deal. The wrong choice can cost you a lot of money, and the right choice can put more money in your pocket. Call one of our licensed representatives today. At 65 Plus Medicare, our free service can show you a plan that will maximize your Medicare benefits, ensure you are taking advantage of all available government assistance programs, and save you money. Call now. 800-779-0961. 800-779-0961. That's 800-779-0961. Not all benefits listed may be available on all plans or in a single benefit package. Enrollment in the described plan type may be limited to certain times of the year unless you qualify for a special enrollment period. No obligation to enroll. Back to our conversation with Keith Notek on the Law Enforcement Show. Keith is a retired law enforcement officer from California, living in Arizona now. Like many people from California, my, my sister just left California, now a Nevada resident. I won't go into the reasons why. People live there, no. People that left, no. Uh, <laughs> beautiful place. Uh, but you've also written a book. The name of the book again? Uh, it's called From Sorrow to Amazing Grace, One Cop's Journey. I did a, a little review. I, I, I read the, the cheat sheets that show up online, a uh, description mm-hmm. of the book. And to use the crib notes, during your police career, you began to spiral out of control. And at some point, you hit some sort of bottom. And we'll go into details more a little bit later on. You hit some sort of bottom, and then you started living a life of recovery. You said early in the conversation, recovering from PTSD, from alcoholism, and from police work. Yes. 
all three very real. By the way, just do a Google search for Keith Notek. That's K-N-O-T-E-K book, and it'll show up. You've had a long career, 30 years in law enforcement, many different agencies. And I'm sure during that time frame, you were exposed to you know, the critical incidents, the, the term we use nowadays for the heavy-duty stuff, the stuff that's very traumatic. We didn't use that when I was a rookie cop. And then through the 80s, we didn't use that term. But now I differentiate between the critical incidents, which departments have gotten very good about trying to debrief and get a head start on, and the daily grind, the daily grind of policing that just wears at so many people, the violence, the trauma, the accidents, you name it. Were you exposed to that as well? Oh, absolutely. I was exposed to, to what we call multiple critical incidents now. And you're right, because I started in the 80s as well. And, uh, you know, a critical incident, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to tell you what that was back then in the 80s. It's, it's a, a newer term. Uh, but, yes, uh, I've been involved in officer-involved shootings, uh, one in which a friend of mine was killed, uh, and, you know, all kinds of violent encounters. I worked as a, a detective sergeant for a while. So, uh, you know, being a small detective bureau, uh, homicide was one of our purviews. So, you know, worked, worked a bunch of homicides and uh, dealt with a lot of death, grief, sorrow, that type of thing. You touched on something that I think is every cop's nightmare. In my career in Baltimore, I lost count of how many people were killed. And I lost count of how many officers were killed in line of duty um, with acts of violence or accident. Didn't matter. The end result is the same. And since 1980, I think it's like 15. I, I can't even remember now. Uh, and wow. one I knew. Uh, I wasn't there. And I thank God to this day I wasn't there because I'll be honest with you, Keith. I had a hard enough time then and even still today dealing with all the things I saw and his death in particular. Yeah, I can relate. I can relate. You know, I, I watch the news and, uh, you know, even out here, we get the Phoenix news where I live. Uh, we, you know, we're north of there by about an hour and a half. But, you know, uh, we, we had a, uh, an officer down there in Phoenix in the valley. He was actually a commander and uh, he responded on a call. He was shot and killed going through a door. And, you know, every time I see something like that on the news, it, it just sunk, sucker punches me in the gut. It, it, it brings it all back home for me. And, you know, I recall uh, those that I knew who, who have gone on before me. So it's, uh, it's definitely very, very somber and, um, and poignant. There was a time when I was a, a younger police and I was happily married, uh, had two children, and uh, right around the, the birth of the, the second, right before the second child was born, I began to change and change dramatically. And part of it was, you know, back then we were told, look, you don't take the job home. You, you go to do your job and then you go home. And I used to have this psychological thing I did where I took off the soft body armor, the Velcro peeling off, and I changed in my mind changing out of uniform from police Jay to married husband Jay to father Jay. And I was very successful at doing that. Or at least I thought so for a long time. And then yeah. it's like someone pulled the rug out from under me. I wasn't able to separate the two. Uh, mm -hmm. And and my life literally crashed. I, I remember thinking, how did it get this bad? Because I didn't see the signs creeping up to that, but they were there. 
Yeah, yeah. I love I love the uh, the analogy you just gave where, you know, you take off your vest, you peel it off and and you try to separate you know, your personal from your professional life. I I use kind of an example of you know, people say, "Hey, why don't you, you know, all right, you're you're a cop 10 hours a day when you're on the beat or whatever, but you know, the rest of the time you're John Q citizen, right?" Uh, you know, you hang up the uniform and, and you leave the uniform in your locker at work. Well, that's all well and good, and it's, you know, it's a nice thought. The problem with that is we all have brains. You know, our brain goes home with us, and you can't turn that off. Being in law enforcement is a calling. You know, it's a calling. So it's, it's, it always, that weight of that oath always stands out in the back of your mind. It's always with you. And I, too, reached a point to where I couldn't turn it off. You know, I brought it home with me uh, 24-7, especially towards the last uh, probably six years of my career. And really, when I look back, it was a slow, steady decline. Uh, I didn't see it then because we didn't talk about it then. And and you're right. Back in the 80s, you'd have a really bad shift, really bad things would happen, a shooting, whatever it was. And the bosses would say to you, and some would even kick in the money, say, go get a couple six packs of beer, hang out with the guys, and talk about it after work. And we did that. Uh, mm-hmm. And we went to parking lots. It was nothing, not like television. It wasn't glamorous. And that's how we dealt with it. It was suck it up, right. buttercup mentality. And yep. it, that stuff helped, Tom. It really did. But it didn't solve the whole problem because very slowly, the alcohol became the way of coping with all the stress and trying to find a way to to, to dim that switch, for lack of better words, in the brain. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's legal, you know, for starters. It's easily accessible, right? You go to the store, you, you buy a bottle, and, and you drink it, you know? Uh, end of story. And... Um, you know, that worked for a while. It worked really well for a while until I reached a point to where it, it didn't. I mean, yeah, I could have, I could have sought help uh, from a mental health professional earlier on and, and all of that stuff, but there was such a stigma in law enforcement to where if you seek help, you're, you're a wuss. You're and a wimp, it's you know? a career ender for a lot of folks, especially back then. We were talking with Keith Notek. Retired law enforcement officer, also an author. When we return, we're going to talk about an incident from his career where a partner was killed in a line of duty, the impact it hit on him, and how it contributed to his demise. This is the Law Enforcement Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Instead of living your dreams, you're living with debt. Now there's a way you can take back control with one simple call. If you owe $10,000 or more in credit card debt, you qualify to receive a free, no-obligation consultation. Call the Debt Helpline now. One simple call is all it takes to get the ball rolling to a debt-free life. Call the Debt Helpline now. 800-709-4389. 800-709-4389. That's 800-709-4389. 
Back to our conversation on the Law Enforcement Today show with Keith Notek calling us from Arizona. Uh, he is a retired law enforcement officer from California, also author of the book. What's the name of the book again, Keith? From Sorrow to Amazing Grace, One Cop's Journey. Part of your story involves a lot of violence. We, we've been through this. Almost everyone I know has been through it. I used to watch. We had, for those don't don't know, yearly we had to go for in-service training. And as a week of classroom, or four week, four days of classroom, then one day at the range for qualifying. And they'd always show like videos. And one of them, they'd have these cops. And they in 20 years, I never pulled my gun except at the range. And then all of a sudden, boom. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, where did these guys work? Because it's not, not like that for us. And But the truth is, when I look back, the four shootings I was involved in, Tom, and by the way, they're not like people think. The first two, I never turned fire. But they came out of absolutely nowhere, was very fast, and over with very quickly. The last two, totally different. Almost everyone I know has been through at least one of those. Not everyone I know has fired a shot or killed somebody, or even shot somebody. Most people don't in policing. That's another misconception that Hollywood has. But you were in a situation where involved a foot pursuit with a wanted suspect and one of your partners was killed? This is true. You know, and I, I want to back up just just a second. Um, I want to mention the first time I was shot at was in 1988. Um, I was on a traffic stop, and I had just let the violator go. And there was another unit that had pulled pulled in behind me. This was in Laguna Beach, California. And uh, another officer and I started talking on the sidewalk after I let the violator go. And we hear this bang, bang, you know, or pop, pop. And, um, and it was definitely uh, distinctively gunfire. I mean, it wasn't a car backfiring. That was the first time I was shot at. It was kind of like a nothing deal, you know. And as you said, uh, it was over very quickly. You know, we grabbed our engine blocks and, and took cover. And, you know, in retrospect, we think that somebody had, had done a drive-by. You know, they saw the, the light bars going on the police cars. They drove by and cranked off a couple of rounds in our direction. So, you know, nobody was injured. Nobody was killed. It was kind of like a nothing deal. Well, nine years later, in 1997, uh, May 21st, 1997, I was a sergeant with the Butte County Sheriff's Department, and that's up in Northern California, just uh, north of Sacramento, uh, the state capital. And uh, I was working night shift. Uh, We got dispatched to a domestic violence call. It was a very busy shift. Um, I was at the gas pumps talking to a uh, one of my deputies who was also fueling up his car, and we were kind of trying to figure out, hey, you know, if it ever quiets down, let's you know grab a bite to eat (laughs) because we're going call to call to call, and and none of us had our dinner, which, as you know. As a career law enforcement officer, uh, you don't want to you don't want to work on an empty stomach. <laughs> no. So, so we're we're talking about that. Well, this call comes in that a, a an Asian male was threatening his wife with a gun um, at a residence, and it was uh, a third party caller. So it was a I don't know I don't think it was an adult child, but someone in their late teens, maybe seventeen ish. Um, one of the children called and said, you know, hey, my dad is chasing my mom around with a gun. So 
Deputy Jim Norman, who I was at the gas pumps with, was dispatched as primary, the primary unit, and I spoke up uh, to be the backup unit because uh, there wasn't anybody else available. So we, we get to the house, and there are a bunch of children in the house, you know, five, six children. And there was a little bit of a language barrier with the older kids um, because this particular family was Hmong, as in H-M-O-N-G. The younger kids spoke English. Um, the, the elder kids um, had spoken broken English. What we could get out of them is that there was some kind of a domestic between the mom and the dad, and the mom and dad left the house, and they they fled on foot, and they were out in the neighborhood somewhere. So Deputy Norman and I uh, cleared the house, uh, made, sure, made sure there weren't any uh, threats inside. Um, I put out a radio description of the male and female and got in my car and started driving around the neighborhood looking for these individuals. Deputy Randy Jennings um, who had just cleared a previous call, ended up coming into the area where we were. And he located the mail behind a church. And I was just a couple blocks away, so I started booking it over there as fast as I could uh, because initial reports were that this guy was armed. Backing up to when, when I was at the house, the, the information was really sketchy. Uh, one of the kids said that, uh, oh, no, there's no firearm involved. So anyway, I get to the church, and about this time, the male suspect starts running behind the church. So Randy Jennings was ahead of me, my deputy, and I bailed out of my car and got in the foot chase as well. Now it's at night. It's dark. Um, the only lighting in the area were the, the high beams from our patrol cars, and they were, you know, they were shining basically in this one area um, on the side of the church. But as the foot chase continued behind the church into this field, it began to get very, very dark. Well, the next thing I know, I, I was calling for a canine unit. To, to come and assist us, and as I was talking on the radio, um, I saw a muzzle flash and shots being fired. Um, I heard a round uh, go past my head. I mean, it was traveling very, very closely. And then I saw Randy, Deputy Randy Jennings, who was in front of me, I saw him go down to the ground. And we were running, and his body was in motion, and, you know, he just, he just dropped, you know. And I, I put the all-call uh, code out over the radio, 1199, shots fired and all that, you know, where everybody rolls. And uh, I, I dropped down to the ground. I unholstered my pistol. And I began to roll um, away from where I dropped because I still heard gunfire, so I'm figuring that's the suspect shooting in my direction where he saw me go to the ground. So my intent was to roll through these weeds that were like two and a half feet high and then pop up in a different location and engage the suspect. Initially, I couldn't get off, get off any, any rounds uh, because 
Randy had fallen in front of me uh, between me and the suspect. So if I tried to take the shot at the suspect, I possibly would have hit Randy. There would have been a, a crossfire type situation. So as I rolled, I popped back up and eerie silence. The gunfire stopped. Additional units began to arrive. Some guys and I searched the field. Um, we located actually Randy and the suspect. We uh, handcuffed and secured the suspect who was uh, deceased and began to initiate CPR on, on Deputy Jennings. We're going to take and, a short break. We are talking with Keith Notek, retired law enforcement officer, also an author. Ever find yourself in a situation where you can't listen to the whole Law Enforcement Today show? Never fear. Past episodes are available online as a podcast, and you can listen for free. That's right. The Law Enforcement Today podcast is free. Do a Google search for Law Enforcement Today podcast, or simply go to letradioshow.com and click the Be Heard tab. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603-800-451-8603-800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603. Return our conversation with Keith Notek, retired law enforcement officer, also author when we took a break, Keith, you're talking about an incident where, unfortunately, uh, an officer you worked with, uh, a deputy, was shot and killed in the line of duty. And I, I can't help, like you, that's a sucker punch. Uh, I don't mean yeah. that in a bad way. It's just like someone punches you right in the solar plexus because I, I go back on my career, I look back, and there was a time where I thought, nothing like that's ever going to happen to me because I'm really good at what I do. I'm like a bad man, if you know what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> And then I realize, as I look back, it wasn't by the grace of God. It wasn't because I was great at what I did. A lot of people helped. I had a lot of great people I worked with. But there's some unknown reason why people who were better police than me, they were killed, and I was not. I was injured. Many others were injured. And one of the things that, to be honest, even after all these years, when I talk to survivors, spouses mm-hmm. of those killed in line of duty, or those who died by suicide, or whatever it might be, I am still a coward. I, I'd rather claw a hole in a wall than talk to them. Uh, yeah. And I've gotten better about doing that. And you just detailing what you went through, it brings up the same thing. I'm like, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. Well, the truth is, the bad stuff's already happened. I can't make it worse. Right. Yeah, you can't change the past. And, you know, uh, Randy Jennings, he was a, a SWAT team member. Uh, 
He was very tactically sound. He was very capable, very competent. He was a good cop. So it doesn't matter how good you are or you aren't. That's the reality. Um, you can be really, really good and highly skilled and highly trained and everything. And there's always someone crazier, stronger, or just has a lucky day. And they can take you yeah. out of the picture quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that incident, it really, it really adversely affected me. You know, after the, the aftermath, you know, talking to the um, post-shooting investigators and, and all of that stuff and getting my brain picked and being emotionally and physically drained, you know, I, I, I actually got injured um, slightly, not from gunfire or anything like that, but I, I actually, when I went down, I landed on a downed barbed wire fence and I got all cut up with rusty barbed wire and uh, this star star thistle stuff. Yeah. It's uh, really thorny. Yeah, it, it went it went between my, my vest and my T-shirt, and, and so my chest. Did you start struggling with things like survivor's guilt? I should have, could have, would have. I did. Survivor's guilt is a very real thing, okay? Three of us ran into the field together, and, and I was the only one that came out of that incident alive. So, you know, I, I was a little bit... Um, you know, I try to put on a, a strong face and, and all that, and, you know, like we were taught in the 80s when I went through the academy and early on in the FTO program, hey, suck it up. You have, you have calls to handle. You know, the calls are your priority. Suck it up, deal with this one, and move on to the next. So that's yeah. what I tried, I tried to do. I went to the department head shrinker to get cleared to go back to work, and... You know, I said, oh, yeah, my my friend was killed. You know, I didn't tell him that I felt personally responsible. See, I had, I had been a sergeant for all of seven months when this happened. So I was new. And, and the truth is, as a sergeant, because I retired as a sergeant, y- yeah. you are responsible for the welfare of the people below you. And you're that's also the, responsible to make sure they do the job right. That's right. So that's how I felt. I felt like I was personally responsible for what happened because my people's safety are my responsibility. You know, I, I look, I still look at it as a sacred trust. So, uh, you know, I had, I had all this stuff going on in my head and I, I sucked it up as best as I could. However, I continued on the job for another, what? I reti- this happened in 97, I retired in 2015. So that was, you know, more years that just, piled up with was that with the inc- incident incidents. that began to change you it did it did eventually i was involved in an incident yeah i was involved in a lot of traumatic incidents you know several officer involved shootings horrific car crash scenes and, and all that that type of stuff but there was one in particular in 2009 and and it was it was where my and the way I described it uh, to, to other people, it was like my past came colliding with the present. It was a, a stabbing in a mall parking lot that I rolled up on. A guy had, unbeknownst to me, when I rolled up, it wasn't even a call. I just, I was just driving around in my police car and I rolled up on it. The guy stabbed his uh, estranged girlfriend multiple times, killed her. Right, right as I was making contact with the vehicle that they were in, and 
you know, again, I'm like, okay, you know, if only I had known there was another person in there. She was on the floorboard bound and gagged because he had kidnapped her. And I walk up on this, what I thought was an occupied van, and it was occupied, and the guy inside started waving a knife around at me as I walked up to the window. So I backed away. I drew down on him. You know, I'm thinking in my, my little brain, hey, I know how this is going to end. I've, I've read that, you know, I've seen the training videos, you know, surviving edge weapons and all of that. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the side door's going to slide open. He's going to bum rush me uh, with a knife, and I'm going to shoot him. That's how this is going to end. But he did something completely that, that boggled my mind at the time. I, I see him turn inside the van, and he starts making downward stabbing motions. Well, as it turns out, we found the body, you know, after we were able to gain access into the vehicle. Um, I was by myself. I called for backup when the first deputy had arrived to, to assist me. We broke out a window and then had to hit the unlock button in this minivan to gain access and, and get, you know, get the guy out of there. So that one. At what that, point in your career did alcohol, PTSD, and all that start to take over? It began right after that incident, the the one I just shared with you in 2009. I, I you know I was of the mindset. It's like if only I had known she was in there. You know I could have taken this guy out. You know I could have. You know I mean I had my front sight picture. You know I had you know when he was inside like well he's not a threat to me so i can't shoot him through the window he's still in the van and unbeknownst to me you know this female was in there and these thoughts go through your head it's like rapid fire when you describe it now i just tell you from my own experience when you describe it now it takes a lot longer to describe it than it does actually to experience it Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I, that one did me in, I started having the bad cop dreams again at night. I I wasn't sleeping. I was irritable. Um, I began to self-medicate with wine. Wine knocked me out before I went to sleep. You know, it would act as a relaxant because it's a depressant, you know? So, uh, you know, it worked great until it didn't then i switched to harder liquor and you know i was i was you know drinking vodka and whatever we had in the house to to knock myself out to to get a few hours of sleep and then you know i just i had the signs and the telltale symptoms of post-traumatic stress i just didn't know myself well enough to realize that that's what it was i just thought that well, I'll just drink. I'll just drink. Well, you know, it's also part of it is I think if I, I can't speak for you, but I'm going to speak from my own experience. I used to think I'd bounce back like I did in my 20s and early 30s, right? Late 20s, and by the time I realized there was no bounce back coming, mm-hmm. it was already too late. I was in the throes of losing everything. Yeah, and there's there's no polite way to put it. It was. It wasn't like Rambo. It wasn't like any of the other stuff you see on television. It was a slow, quiet suffering that wound up destroying my marriage, her peace of mind. I was a totally different guy from when she married me four years or five years earlier. Totally different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Before we get out of time here, tell people again the name of your book, where they can get more information, and we got to have you back. 
Great. I'd love that. Uh, yeah, the name of the book is From Sorrow to Amazing Grace, One Cop's Journey. Uh, and uh, we're in the early stages of, uh, of turning it into a movie. Uh, apparently a producer uh, liked it and, uh, and wants to do something with it. So watch, uh, watch out for From Sorrow to Amazing Grace, the movie. And reach out to me when that becomes a reality. Keith, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much, Jay. Uh, God bless, and have a great day. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today Show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.